0: Morning family. There's a big difference, isn't there, between having a driver's license and really knowing how to drive. Anybody who's ever ridden in the car with me could have said amen there. That was not planned. You can pass a driver's examination and be authorized to drive by your state and still not really know how to drive. In fact, did you know that you can even be hired as a driving instructor and not really know how to drive? Just ask the folks at Community Driving School in Lakewood, Colorado. Last month, they hired a new employee as a driving instructor, and on his second day at the job, this is what happened. Beautiful, isn't it? When you turn in your dictionaries to the word ironic, that's the picture that you see right there. Now, in this guy's defense, he wasn't actually teaching anybody how to drive when that happened. He was just minding his own business, trying to park his vehicle in his parking spot for work. And also in his defense, it does say, learn to drive, not learn to park. So there's that. Sometimes, those who should be instructing others don't know what to do themselves. And there's a similar irony at play in our text this morning in Matthew chapter 26. If you don't have a Bible, grab one, grab an app, and open it up to Matthew 26. It's going to help you immensely if you can follow along in your copy of God's Word as we study it together. If you are our guest this morning, we're so grateful that you're here. Uh, our normal practice as a church family is to walk through books of the Bible and study them together. and we have been a couple of years now studying the Gospel of Matthew, and now we're in the home stretch. Now at this point, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' value should be obvious. Think about some of the things Jesus has done. He's walked on water. He's fed thousands of people with essentially a Captain D's Happy Meal. He has healed the sick. He's cleansed the lepers. He has given sight to the blind. He has cast out demons. He has taught thousands upon thousands of people with authority. He has called to fishermen and tax collectors and and zealots, follow me, and they've listened and obeyed. He has said that He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. His value should be extremely obvious to anybody who's made it this far in Matthew's gospel. And yet, there are some who still do not realize how precious and valuable Jesus is. At this point in the story, we're just a few days away from Jesus' crucifixion, and We will encounter people that should know better, who do not recognize the value and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. The big idea that I think our text demonstrates this morning is that Jesus is worth more than anyone or anything. It's a big idea. Jesus is worth more than anyone or anything. And yet, there are people that should know that who don't. For example, in the first scene in our text, we'll see the religious leaders who should have recognized Jesus' value. And they should have led the people of Israel to celebrate Jesus. And They're plotting to kill Him. In the third scene in our story, we'll see one of Jesus' own disciples Judas, one of the 12, who spent three years, every waking moment, in the presence of God himself, still trading Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And in the very middle of the story, we'll see a woman named Mary who shows us what it looks like to actually treasure Jesus. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're really grateful that you're here this morning. This is the right place for you to be. My prayer for you is that in our text, you will see why Jesus is worth more than anyone or anything. If you're in this room and you are a follower of Jesus, that's most of us in this room, I hope that God will use these three scenes in His Word to deepen your love for Jesus. Like Luke prayed a moment ago, how easy is it for us to become distracted by lesser loves? How easy is it for you, Christian, to forget, to treasure Jesus? May God use His Word to help reawaken, rekindle an affection, an appetite, an excitement about Jesus. That's what we want this morning. We're going to look at three scenes in the story. Scene number one is what the chief priests treasured. We're going to look at that in verses 1 through 5. Starting with verse 1, when Jesus had finished All these sayings he said to his disciples. Now, let's stop there for just a second because it's important that we remember the context of our text this morning. When Jesus finished all these sayings is referring to everything we've been studying the past few weeks. If you've been with us at BBC the past few weeks, we've been walking through what's called the Olivet Discourse. And in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus talks at length about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 in Jerusalem, and about the end of the world. Last week, we looked at the final judgment. And, and if you've been with us through that, perhaps you've heard some things in, from this pulpit that maybe you're not sure about. Maybe you've got a slightly different perspective on the end of the world. Listen, it's okay if we don't agree on everything about the end of the world. What matters is that we agree on what matters most. And Jesus is kind of like reframing our perspective. He's talked about the end of the world. He's talked about all that stuff, that there's so much debate. And he says, now listen to what's really important. What is it? Look at verse 2. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Brothers and sisters, if you're a part of the Pocosin Baptist Church family, where we must have unity, deep unity, is on the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what's central. I want you to look at verse 2 carefully, and notice that he says, after two days, the Passover is coming. The Passover was, of course, this massive festival in Israel. It celebrated God rescuing His people from bondage to Egypt. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Passover story, you can read about it in the first 13 chapters of the book of Exodus, the second book in your Bible. Um, We're going to be looking a little bit more into the Passover next week in our sermon. uh, So it might help you to... Do some homework this week and read Exodus chapters 1 through 13 and just refresh yourself on the Passover. But this was that festival that remembered God rescuing His people from Egypt through ten plagues. And on that final plague, the angel of death passed over God's people, whoever had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of their home. And Jesus says, Jesus, whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God, Jesus says, right at the peak of the Passover festival, where you celebrate how God rescues his people through the blood of a lamb, that's when I'm going to die. Something massively significant. Now, This is the fourth time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has prophesied his eventual death. He's told his disciples how it was going to happen. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be crucified. He told his disciples where it was going to happen, in the city of Jerusalem. He told his disciples who was going to do it. It was going to be the chief priests and the Pharisees and even the Gentile rulers. He told them why. He was dying to rescue his people. But now for the first time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples when. Immediately after the Passover festival, this is going to happen. Now, If it's been hard for you to process some of what Jesus has taught us in the Olivet Discourse about the temple being destroyed and about his return, all of that stuff, final judgment can be kind of hard to process all that. Just imagine how hard it would be for the disciples. And then imagine Jesus has just told them right after Passover, I am going to die. How would they be processing all that? Matthew doesn't tell us. In fact, Matthew just shifts the scene to something that's happening on the other side of Jerusalem. Somewhere near the temple district, there's a group of religious leaders meeting in secret. Look at verse 3. Matthew 26, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. Now, it's been a while since we have talked about these religious leaders But remember, Matthew 23, if you go back in your Bibles to Matthew 23, is when Jesus issued seven woes of judgment to the religious leaders. That was earlier Tuesday morning. Now it's Tuesday night. There's a lot of content that's happened in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's the same day. That very same day, these religious leaders and Pharisees and chief priests gather back in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. What are they gathering to do? Jesus has rebuked them. Jesus has condemned them. Jesus has warned them. If you were with us when we studied Matthew 23, one of the things I challenged us to do is to examine ourselves. So are these religious leaders gathering to examine themselves in light of Jesus' word? Look at verse 4. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Rather than examining themselves, rather than confessing their sin, rather than getting on their faces before a holy God, Rather than doing any sort of introspection, what do the Pharisees do? They gather to plot revenge. We're gonna silence him. You know, the the most dangerous thing about pride is that proud people never learn because proud people never listen. So what do you mean? If you're proud and someone confronts you, Someone critiques you. Do you know what you do? You do one of two things. You either pout and say, I'm the worst ever. That's weak pride. Or you fight back. That's strong pride. But what you don't do in either instance is listen and examine and learn and grow. And that's exactly what the Pharisees do here. We're going to kill this Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that they're, they want to do it quickly But they don't want it to happen during the Passover. The Passover festival was a massive event in the life of Israel. The law of Moses required God's people to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so the city was absolutely loaded with people. Think uh, New York City as the ball is dropping on New Year's Eve. Times Square, right? Massive Crowds of people, people everywhere, and the Pharisees say, listen, we cannot kill him then, not during the feast, because there's going to be an uproar among the people. And You say, why do they care? Who cares if the people get upset? The Gospel of John actually fills in some of this detail for us. If you're, if you're new to Christianity, by the way, this morning, uh, Christians believe that there are four Gospels in our New Testament Uh, Think of them kind of like four camera angles on a football field. They're all telling the same story. They're just looking at it from different angles, different directions. Okay, so you've got the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and then Luke, and and then John. In John chapter 11, John gives us a few more details about this meeting. You'll see the verses on the screen. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs... If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So why are the Pharisees, why are the religious leaders worried about an uproar among the people? Because if there's an uproar among the people, then the Roman soldiers will act quickly to suppress any uprising. And if the Roman soldiers act quickly to suppress an uprising in Jerusalem, what will happen to the religious leaders? They'll lose their power. They'll lose their status. They'll lose their positions. They'll lose their palaces. They'll lose their temple. They'll lose everything. So, what then do the chief priests treasure? They treasure their positions of power, they treasure their authority. They treasure their control over people. In this way, the religious leaders are a lot like abusive leaders. Abusive leadership wants to control the narrative. Abusive leaders are not transparent. They want to work in secret. Abusive leaders are self-serving. Rather than giving of themselves to serve their people, they use their people to serve themselves. Abusive leaders are manipulative. They'll plot and scheme to maintain control. And abusive leaders are deadly. These leaders say, we would rather kill Jesus than risk losing what we've got. Now, If you're in this room and you find yourself in any form of leadership this morning, whether in the church, in the home, in the workplace, I would challenge you to examine yourself for any element of this sort of abusive behavior in your leadership. Am I transparent as a leader? Am I forthcoming? Am I seeking to maintain positions of power and authority? Am I willing to do whatever it takes to keep control? If you're in this room and you're under authority, and that ought to be every single one of us in this room, all of us are under authority. Consider the leaders in your life. By God's grace, not every leader is an abusive leader. Where you have good authority, where you have godly authority, praise God and thank those people that have authority over you. But these men are a perfect example of evil, abusive authority. Now, before we move on from this first scene, I want you to see something about the beauty and the glory of Jesus in this section. Isn't it interesting that the religious leaders are determined not to, To kill Jesus during the Passover. But when does Jesus die? During the Passover. They look like they're in control, they look like they're manipulating the situation and they get what they want, but they don't. Everything that they are doing is only fulfilling the purposes of a sovereign God. Dear Christian, whatever things are upside down in your life right now, I don't know what they might be, but whatever is happening in your life, none of it is outside of the control of a sovereign and good and glorious Jesus. So treasure Him. Treasure Him. He's worth more than anyone and anything. Uh, second scene we're going to look at this morning is to see what treasured in verses 14 to 16. We're going to skip over verses 6 to 13 for now, and look at what happens next in the chief priest's secret meeting. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. The story of Judas is one of the most tragic stories in the entire Bible. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. Jesus had more than 12 disciples, but he had an inner ring of 12 disciples that he eventually would call, all but Judas, apostles and send out to establish the New Testament church. These guys were the inner ring. These guys were the inner circle. And Judas was one of the 12. For three years, Judas spent every waking moment with Jesus. He saw his miracles. He saw his power. He knew his authority. He had a front row seat to everything that Jesus was and is, and still he betrays him. By the way, if you're in this room thinking that it would be easier to follow Jesus if only you could see with your physical eyes, I'd encourage you to think again. Isn't it possible to see all of it and still reject Jesus? By the way, if you're thinking that identifying closely with Jesus means that you're okay with Jesus, I'd also encourage you to think again. You cannot identify closer to Jesus than one of the twelve And yet, this man spends three years identifying with Jesus, and in the end, he rejects Him. The story of Judas ought to cause every Christian to look at himself and say, but by the grace of God, there go I. But it will help us, I think, to examine our own lives if we understand why Judas betrayed Jesus. Why did he do it? The text tells us that he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We're not exactly sure how much money that was, but probably not a whole lot. Maybe a few hundred bucks at most. What's more significant than the value of the 30 pieces of silver is the fact that the Old Testament law on multiple occasions, cites 30 pieces of silver as the price for a slave. And I think that tells us everything we need to know about Judas. In Judas' mind, Jesus existed to serve Judas. Jesus was but a slave to Judas. For Judas, he's willing to ride that Jesus train as long as he gets what he wants. Maybe it was popularity, recognition. Imagine the crowds surrounding Jesus and what it would have been like to be one of the inner ring. Maybe it was money. We know that Judas is betraying Jesus for money here. We know that Judas was also the treasurer of the disciples. And we know that sometimes he dipped his finger into the bag and stole a little bit extra for himself. Maybe Judas, as his name implies, was a zealot who wanted to see Jesus overthrow Rome. And when Jesus enters the city and he looks at the temple and he says, your house is left to you desolate and that place is going to be destroyed and not one stone is going to remain atop another, Judas says, I'm done. I'm out. I thought you were going to do this for us and you're not. You're not bringing it home, Jesus. Whatever the reason, Judas... Follow Jesus for what he could get. Jesus was a means to an end. Judas treasures what he can get out of Jesus, what he can get from Jesus. He doesn't treasure Jesus. He treasures money. He treasures fame. He treasures what he wants. He treasures himself. But dear brother, sister, friend, the truth is that the Judas mentality is more common than we might think. How many professing Christians have followed Jesus merely as a means to an end? I don't really want Jesus. I just want what he can give me. If I follow Jesus, then maybe my marriage will be better. If I follow Jesus, maybe I'll be more successful at work. If I follow Jesus, maybe my children will behave better. If I follow Jesus, maybe I can win that relationship back. If I follow Jesus, maybe I'll get a spouse. If I follow Jesus, maybe He'll heal me. And in the end, what we're looking for, what we're treasuring, is not Jesus, but the thing that we hope Jesus gives us. And how many times have we seen men and women and young people walk away from Jesus because the thing that they really wanted, He never gave to them? Dear friend, let that not be true for you. I think if some of us are honest, the story of Judas is a little bit scary for us. Because we look at this story and we think, what if, what if I'm like Judas? What if I do that? The great reformer, Martin Luther, used to say that nobody ever breaks the Ten Commandments until they break the first commandment. first commandment is to have no other gods before the true God. What Luke summarized in his prayer, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Martin Luther said, you'll never steal unless you first treasure something more than God. You'll never lie unless you first treasure something above God. You'll never dishonor your parents unless you treasure something more than God. You'll never covet unless you treasure something more than God. And if you break the first commandment, then you can break any of the commandments. But if you keep that first commandment and you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you won't break any of the other commandments. And then Luther said this, the way to keep the first commandment is to believe the gospel. To look and see Christ dying on a tree and remember He did that for me. To remember that I am not His by my works, but by grace To remember that my sin was that great. To remember that his love was that deep. To remember that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. That's how we avoid being like Judas. By looking to Jesus. By treasuring Jesus. I remember hearing about a missionary who went to a remote tribe somewhere that had never heard the story of Jesus before and They were absolutely mesmerized by all the scenes in the story of Christ. He walked on water. They're clapping and cheering, feeding thousands of people. They're cheering. And then Judas betrays Jesus. And this crowd, they were shocked, absolutely devastated, weeping, shocked. Why don't we get shocked like that today? It's because we know the story, right? It's like the first time you watched Frozen and Hans starts singing Love is an Open Door, you're like, yeah, man, this is great. And then it's like, oh, no, he didn't. And now when you watch it the second time and the third time and the 89th time if you have little girls, you, you don't, you're not buying it when he's singing that song. I know what you're going to do, Hans. Right? So too with the story of Judas. We're not surprised anymore because we know how it ends, but everybody else was surprised. Judas wasn't walking around in a black robe. You know, it wasn't like there's sinister music every time Judas enters the room. Next week, when Jesus says, One of you guys is going to betray me, everybody says, Is it me? Nobody's like, Well, duh, it's Judas over there. Everybody was surprised except for one person. Who? Listen to John chapter 6, verse 64. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Do you see the beauty of Jesus? Again, he appears weak. He appears, he's being betrayed by one of his friends And yet, in that, you see the sovereignty of Jesus. He's in control through all of this, and you see the tenderness of Jesus. Jesus must have treated Judas the way that he treated all the other disciples, with kindness and grace. Is this not a God worth treasuring? Is this not a God worth more than anyone or anything? Well, even if on either side of this woman in the middle of our story, Even if on either side there are people that should have known better but didn't. There is one woman who treasures Jesus rightly. So consider with me in verses 6 through 13 what Mary treasured. The final scene in our story is actually a flashback. Uh, We know this because John chapter 12 says that it happened six days before the Passover. So why does Matthew place this story, this flashback right here? because he's he's not making a chronological point, he's making a theological one. In other words, Matthew deliberately places this story right in the middle between two groups who treasure Jesus wrongly to show us how one person treasures Jesus rightly. On either side of the story, you have a villain treasuring something instead of Jesus, and right in the middle, you have this woman who treasures Jesus rightly. Now, we need to be really careful to think like a first century Jew right here. Because here's the deal. Today, in our stories that we tell today, think your Star Wars, your Pixar stories, your Disney stories, all that stuff. In our, in our stories that we tell today, is it surprising when there's a female superhero surrounded by male villains? Is that surprising? No. In fact, it's quite common in our stories today. We tell a lot of stories with with strong women. And as a dad to three girls, I'm grateful for that. But that is not the way things were in Jesus' day. Just to let you know the way that people often thought in Jesus' day. Here's a popular prayer, not a biblical prayer. This is not in the Bible. But this is a popular prayer that many Jewish men used to pray. They used to wake up every morning and say, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, a slave. Or a woman. Don't add that to your prayer journal, folks. Not a good prayer. But that's the way people thought in those days. In the 21st century, people are super impressed that there's this woman highlighted as the hero in the story. But in Matthew's day, nobody would have been impressed. Could it be, friend, that that's another reason why you should consider and believe the truthfulness of the Scriptures? See, if Matthew was making this story up, he would not have placed this woman right here as the one who gets it right. He would have picked a strong man, and everyone would have been like, yeah, Matthew, that's great. Why does Matthew tell the story like this? Because this is how it happened. Because it's true. So what actually happened? Look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, I'll stop there for a second. So, Jesus is in Bethany. That's where He's staying during the Passover feast. Jerusalem is absolutely crowded. You can't get a room in the city. So, He's staying with His friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany. And this particular night, they are invited to a feast at the house of a guy named Simon, who's a leper. Wait a minute. That should cause all sorts of alarm bells to go off. If you know anything about leprosy in the Bible, you know that lepers were unclean. They're untouchable. You don't spend time with lepers. You certainly don't go to a leper dinner party. So most people believe that Simon the leper was probably a healed leper, someone that once was leprous, but now has been made clean by Jesus which I think is a good point for how Jesus loves to spend time with the people that he heals. So what happens in this dinner party? Verse seven, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. What's happening in that verse? Uh, John 12 verse three tells us that the woman in this story was a woman named Mary Mary. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, three siblings, lived in Bethany. This is Mary of Mary and Martha fame. She's the one that's pouring this flask of ointment on Jesus. Now, what's that all about? Let's see if John's account can clear things up for us. So John 12, 3 says that this flask was filled with pure nard. Does that help? For some of you, the only nard you've ever heard of is Andy Bernard on The Office. That was a joke, but the rest of you don't know about the office. Okay, that's fine. What's nard? It's an oil that was made from a very rare, fragrant plant that grows in the Himalayan mountains, okay? So, for the young people in this room, think uber-expensive essential oils. Older people, think expensive perfume. Got it? Good? Okay. So expensive oil, this woman comes to Jesus, and she dumps it on his head. Now, I know some of you love your essential oils, and I know some of you love your perfumes. It's great. It's wonderful. I've never seen any of you just dump a bottle on somebody's head before, right? It seems kind of a weird thing to do. Um, Again, in the first century, if you're a first century Jew, pouring oil on someone's head was highly symbolic. That was what you did to anoint a king for service. In fact, 2,000 years later, in 2023, as King Charles III is being coronated, did you know he went behind a screen where the video cameras weren't allowed and he was anointed with oil as king? And we're Americans, we're not supposed to care about that, but some of you care about that. That's what really happened. We're anointing kings for service. This woman, Mary, comes before Jesus and she takes this expensive oil and she anoints Jesus as the king of kings. The Bible also says that she takes some of the oil and she washes his feet and dries them with her hair. This is an act of absolute service and surrender and treasure of King Jesus. Now, you would think that everybody in the room would say, this woman is amazing. I wish I had thought of that. That's not what happens. Look at verse 8 in your Bibles. Matthew 26, verses 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. The disciples are not happy. They are not grateful. They are not cheering Mary on. They're absolutely furious. Why? Again, John's, Gospels, John's Gospel fills in a few details. John 12, 4 says that the one who made the comment to Mary, do you know who it was? It was Judas. Judas. John also tells us that Judas made that comment, not because he cared about the poor, but because Judas took some of the money out of the money bag and kept it for himself. But even if Judas is the one who said these words, Matthew's gospel is clear that all the disciples felt that way, all of them. But why? Why were they so concerned John's gospel also tells us in verse 5 of John chapter 12 that the bottle was worth 300 denarii, which is basically one year's salary. Now stop and think about this for a second. Try to get your head around this. Figure out in your head how much money you make a year. Okay? Figure out in your head roughly how much money you make a year. Now imagine going on Google... And buying a bottle of essential oils or perfume, whichever is your thing, that costs that amount, and bringing it to Jesus and dumping it out on his head. You get the picture of why this is a big deal? I mean, think about all the things we could do in our building, right? we got a building project we're working on. Man, what could we do with a year's salary? Think about all the missionaries we could send. Think about all the outreach we could do in our community. Think about all the adoptions we could sponsor. Think about all the things we could do. No matter how much you agree with the disciples in this moment, Jesus says, you're wrong. You're wrong. Look at verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? for she has done a beautiful thing to me. Instead of joining his disciples in rebuking Mary, Jesus rebukes his disciples. He encourages Mary. He says, what you've done for me is beautiful. By the way, dear Christian, I think we can learn a lesson from this verse, and that is often we don't need to rise up for our own defense, do we? People accuse you of being radical for Jesus. Let them say what they will. Jesus will defend his people. Look at verse 11. Jesus explains why Mary was so right and the disciples were so wrong. Verse 11. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. I want us to be really careful to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is, is not saying we shouldn't care for the poor. He's not saying that. The New Testament is filled with instructions for God's people to care for the poor, especially for widows and orphans and their distress. We are called to care for the poor. Just maybe a month or so ago, I was having a meeting with one of our members, uh, Brother Adam Hess. Some of you know Adam You may not know that Adam's job is to help coordinate government response to poverty in our area. And I was having breakfast with Adam. We were talking about poverty and Hampton Roads and beyond and what PBC could do, maybe what we should do or shouldn't do to serve the poor in our community. And Adam said something that has haunted me. He said that the only churches that are really actively, consistently involved in caring for the poor in Hampton Roads are theologically liberal churches. Bible-believing, gospel-believing, Jesus-following, faithful to Scripture churches seem to have forgotten to care for the poor. I say that to my shame as a pastor and perhaps our shame as a church, to any degree that we're guilty of that. We should care for the poor. May the Lord raise up more men and women who have a passion to care for refugees, to care for orphans and widows in our community and beyond. If you're interested in that, if that that burns in you, a desire to help the poor in our community, talk to me after the service. I'd love to hook you up with a team that's hoping to do that well. We need to care for the poor. It's one of the ways we show that we believe the gospel. When we were poor, Christ came for us. We were spiritually bankrupt. He gave, He left the riches of heaven to give us Himself. So we care for the poor. But Jesus is saying here, He's not saying we shouldn't care for the poor. He's saying that it was right for Mary to treasure him more than the poor. Jesus is not saying don't care for the poor. Jesus is saying care for me more. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second. If Jesus is just a man, that is an absolutely ludicrous statement. If Jesus is just a man and he says, it's better for you to take a year's salary and dump it down the drain in devotion to me than to feed hundreds of hungry, poor people, then he is either a demonic man or absolutely mentally possessed or something. But if Jesus is God, then he's absolutely right. Do you see There's really only two options when it comes to who Jesus is. Either Jesus is exactly who he said he was and he is worthy of all of our worship and he is worth more than anyone and anything or he is a madman or a liar or worse. So many people want to uphold Jesus as a good person but refuse to worship him as God. You cannot do that. A man who says these kinds of things and isn't God, is a horrible human being. But the New Testament is clear that Jesus is God. Uh, Listen to Colossians chapter one, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him All things hold together. Dear friend, Jesus is God. That's why He's so precious. That's why He's so valuable. That's why we must treasure Him. What Jesus says next perhaps may be even more earth-shattering. Look at verse 12. Jesus says that when she's anointing His body, Mary is not only anointing Him as king, She's also preparing him for burial. He says, "In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial." want you look at the juxtaposition here between two truths. Jesus is God, and Jesus will die." Those two truths together are the heart of the gospel. Listen to me, dear friend. The Bible says that each one of us has a problem called sin. Young person, boys and girls, you have a problem called sin. Older person, 70s, 80s, you have a problem called sin. And that sin has created a massive separation between you and God. You must, somebody must pay the penalty for your sin. I can't pay it for you. I've got my own sin to deal with. Your parents can't pay it for you. Your, your friends can't pay it for you. Who can pay your penalty? Only somebody of eternal value. Only somebody with zero sin himself. Only God can pay your penalty. And so God becomes a man. Jesus steps into this world in human skin so that he can pay the penalty for your sin and mine. That is the gospel. That's how we're saved. Not by working for anything, but by trusting in the work of Jesus. If you're with us this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, we would plead with you to turn from your sins and trust in this Jesus today. If you'd like to learn more about what that means, we'd love to sit down and talk with you. Maybe go through a little course called Christianity Explained to help you understand what it means to be a Christian, but this is the heart of it that God would die for us and rise from the dead so that we can be saved. Now, if you're new here and wrapping your mind around all of this is hard for you, I've got good news for you. Even the disciples struggled to understand what was going on. Nobody in here really got this the first time they heard it, including me. It takes time. It's hard. But Jesus says what this woman did is worth celebrating. Look at verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, even in 2023 in Pocosin, Virginia, what this woman has done will be told in memory of her. Isn't that cool? We're fulfilling Matthew 26, 13 right now. Now, as we wrap up this morning, I want us to consider some practical lessons about what it means for you and I to treasure Jesus as we conclude. First lesson is that we need to treasure Jesus publicly. Isn't it interesting? Judas, the chief priest, they're meeting in the dark, they're meeting in secret. What Mary does, she does publicly. She doesn't go and whisper in Jesus' ear, she doesn't wait till he's all alone somewhere. In the middle of a crowded house filled with people, she goes in front of him and she publicly displays her love and affection for Jesus. In the same way, today, Jesus expects his followers publicly treasure him. So how do I do that? Jesus isn't here for me to pour oil on his head. How do you do that? How do you publicly display your love for Jesus? The first way you do that is through what we call baptism. When you're, you put your faith in Jesus, you repent of your sins and trust in Him, you come before God's people, and you publicly declare, I'm a follower of Jesus by going through baptism. We're going to be having a baptism service in just a few weeks here at PBC, and if that's where you're at this morning, you're ready to make that public, would you talk with me after the service? I'd love to talk with you more about how you could be a part of that baptism service in a few weeks. Many of you, maybe most of you, have already done that. You've already proclaimed publicly that you're following Jesus through baptism. What about you? How do you publicly treasure Jesus? By faithfully being involved in the local church. That's the place where Jesus has his presence in a special way. We gather with God's people. We love God's people. We celebrate the Lord's Supper and we remember and we rejoice and we follow Jesus publicly alongside his people in a place called the local church. So let me ask you, dear friend, are you involved in the life of a local church? Are you a member of a gospel-preaching local church? If you're not, what's holding you back? And if you are, are you engaged to the degree that you should be with, with your local church? Mary treasured Jesus publicly, and so should we. Second, Mary treasured Jesus sacrificially. Judas and the chief priests were gladly willing to sacrifice Jesus to keep their stuff. Mary gave up her stuff to treasure Jesus. And Jesus today expects His people to treasure Him sacrificially today. We sacrifice our time, gathering faithfully with God's people, by gathering to study His Word in discipleship or Sunday school, by gathering to fellowship with His people in small groups. We sacrifice our energy by serving one another. We sacrifice our resources by faithfully giving to support the work of the church. We sacrifice so much to love and serve each other in this faith family. I would just ask you, Christian, where are you holding back? What are the things that you're keeping to yourself and refusing to sacrifice to show that you treasure Jesus? The third lesson we learn from Mary is that we should treasure Jesus truly. Here's what I mean. I think sometimes we think that if I can't do this perfectly, then I shouldn't even try. Did you know that Mary was a sinner just like you? Mary had a sin nature just like every single one of us in this room, which means that Mary did not treasure Jesus perfectly. And yet, she treasured Him truly. She really did treasure Him. She really did love Him. Some of you Christians, I think, are so afraid that you might mess it up somehow that you don't even try. Christian, don't be like the guy that buries his talent in the ground. Put it to use. Use your gifts. Serve, love. You might not do it perfectly. I promise you, you won't. But take your weakness and your sin-stained service to Jesus and say, use me, Lord. She treasured Him truly. And that means every single one of us can do that too. And finally, we should treasure Jesus together. Perhaps you're thinking this would all be so much easier if Jesus was physically here, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful To physically see Jesus and be able to present your greatest treasure to him personally? Some of us, I think, we feel like it would be easier to serve Jesus if we could go right in front of him and do what Mary did. This is one reason why it's so important that we read the Bible in context. Were you with us last week? Do you remember what Jesus said to the sheep and the goats? He said, what you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. Dear Christian, you take the lowliest PBC member and you lavishly love them. Jesus says, that was for me. That was just as if you were Mary pouring that oil on my head. You give of yourself faithfully, consistently, lavishly to love each other. And Jesus says, you're doing it as unto me. And we do all of this because we know that even though Mary is pouring out all of this for Jesus, Jesus is about to pour out all of himself for us. We do this looking to the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this incredible story.